the scripture. So today we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 to 29. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as we read this passage? I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face to my shame i must say we were too weak for that but whatever anyone else dares to boast of i'm speaking as a fool i also dare to boast of that are they hebrews so am i are they israelites so am i are they the offspring of abraham so am i are they servants of christ i'm a better one I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Artius was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Amen. This is God's word. We're actually only going to go through verse 29, and then that last portion of the chapter we'll do next week and the beginning of chapter 12. So jumping right into it, verse 16 again. Uh, let me pray first. Can't forget that. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, do speak to us through your word. And I thank you for every guest that's here this morning and for all of those who regularly attend. Lord, help us grow in grace and learn from this suffering and the, the faithfulness of the Apostle Paul to endure that we might also endure by your grace, Lord. We do lift up our brother Mario and his family, Lord. Watch over them, keep them. Lord, we pray that they are able to come back again in your perfect time and that you'd watch over this congregation downstairs, um, our, our, our brothers and sisters and Fuente de Vida Fellowship, Lord, watch over them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So I got to pull this back up. There we go. Verse 16 again. 
I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I may boast a little. You know, the false teachers were probably referring to the Apostle Paul as a fool. So Paul's saying the Corinthians should not accept that judgment. After all, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, if you call someone a fool, you are in danger of the judgment. But he says, if you think he's a fool, then let him act a little foolishly by comparing his resume with theirs. If that's how they judge themselves as being superior to Paul, then compare what they boast about with who Paul actually is. What he's doing is warning the Corinthians that he's utterly serious about this while admitting that he's about to don the guise of a fool. Paul had probably never shared his credentials with them, relying solely on the power of the cross. He was focused on communicating the gospel, not his past accomplishments. For Paul, it was all about Jesus and his cross and his resurrection. May God give us the same passion. Amen? Amen? Do you want that passion that that's what life is about? That that's, worth, that's what is, is the most important thing in our life? That it's not about us. It's not about what we've done or what we've accomplished or the letters after our name or any of that stuff. It's about Jesus. Amen? May God give us that passion. However, since the false teachers were undermining that pure message of the gospel, you know, that Christ died for us, that he made a way for us to be right with God by taking our sins upon himself and giving us his righteousness, because that was being distorted, Paul thought that it was necessary to win over those who were being influenced by those teachers, um, by their false worldly standards, by comparing those standards with his own history, which serves to protect Paul's character while at the same time indicting the character of his rivals who engaged in these practices unapologetically. God's choice of Paul was very tactical. Of course, God created Paul for the very purpose of being the apostle to the Gentiles, but before his conversion, he had this passion and sincerity that was unrivaled. He was one of the up-and-coming, leading young Jewish men, but it was misguided. He also had the respect of his fellow Jews. His conversion upset the Jewish leadership, and his effectiveness at winning the diaspora, that is, all the, the Jews that were outside of Palestine, really upset the Jewish leadership. So he was so successful, in fact, that they determined that they had to kill him. We don't know if these detractors that were in Corinth were Judaizers, in other words, um, people who claimed to be Christians and yet tried to get people to obey the laws of Moses, or if they were just out to gain followers and money. But whichever, they felt they had to put Paul down to gain the congregation's loyalty. Verse 17, what I am saying with, with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. 
So in other words, boasting in what God has brought us through and how he's worked in our lives, drawing attention to ourselves is not what the Lord would have us do. It is foolish to use the world's standards. But Paul's passionate about this congregation and about them not being misled. And he wants to present them, as we read in a previous passage, as a pure virgin to Christ, not as a bride who's been led astray to other affections. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 3, for the, by the grace of, uh, by the by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I like that verse because it gives this balance to humility and, and being honest with, with what God's done in your life. We should recognize that without Jesus in our lives, we could never be righteous or accomplish anything of real worth. That's genuine humility. On the other hand, we shouldn't deny what God does in and through us. That's sober judgment. If God has given us faith and accomplished things through us, we should acknowledge with gratitude and give God all the glory. To not do so is to hide your light under a bushel and refuse to let others see how gracious God has been to us. We have this fine line between pride that boasts in our accomplishments and on the other hand, wanting to know people, people to know the grace that is ours and how God has been so good to produce lasting fruit in our lives. That's our testimony. Verse 19, for you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. Paul's writing this with stinging sarcasm. This verse is like a, a slap in the face to get them to reevaluate themselves and their attitude toward Paul and toward the false teachers. In his first letter, he tried to tell them they were really not as wise as they thought themselves to be. In that letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 3.18, he warned them not to deceive themselves into thinking they had the wisdom of this age, but instead to humble themselves so that they could become wise. He slams their self-perceived wisdom in that chapter 4.10 by saying Paul and his team are fools while the Corinthians are so wise. And apparently the false teachers were using the Corinthians' egos to manipulate them. So Paul states that these men that think they are so wise are really fools in God's eyes. We can easily make the same mistake if someone comes into town and they look sharp and they speak impressively and they have some new revelation or some new method in which we are going to be more successful, they find a lot of itching ears. Of course, they claim it's all for God's glory, but be sure to give me your email address so I can let you know the awesome things God's doing through me and receive your donations. Over time, we can see their fruits. As Paul said, don't be deceived. Verse 20, 
for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. This verse gives us five descriptions of how the false teachers were operating. They made slaves of the Corinthians. This implies they were domineering and using bullying tactics to get the hearers to submit to their teaching. Devour means they exploited them for financial gain. Taking advantage of them is probably also referring to financial gain, but it may be forms of servitude as well. To put on airs is to make them more important sounding and impressive than they really are. And striking them may be literal, but it's more likely it's harsh rebukes to those who didn't submit to their teaching. You know, we rarely see this, this kind of behavior in our day. I, I have witnessed it in both evangelical and charismatic churches, but most churches in our culture today go to the opposite extreme to try to please everyone and make everyone feel comfortable. The heart, that harsh teaching style was actually common in that, time, in that time among the sophists. The false teachers may have been taking a lesson from the sophists to how to convey oneself boldly as to demand respect, even subservience of the humble. Paul had displayed the opposite in manner and style of teaching. And the contrast was meant to open their eyes to who truly cared about them. Paul says, we were too weak for that, also written with a sarcastic tone. They would never dream of Paul treating them like that. It made the contrast stand out. He's talking, he, I'm sorry, he's taking their accusation of being weak and making it into a path of real strength. And he's going to completely redefine the idea of what it means to be weak and strong and the path to real strength in the coming chapters. John warns us in 1 John 4.1 to not believe every spirit, but to test the spirits. We should be careful to see that what people teach lines up with the word of God. The telltale sign of false teachers are their constant reminder of their credentials, their training, and their insistence on financial matters, which always ends up benefiting them. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22, to test prophecies, that is the declaration of the word, to cling to good and reject what is evil. That is also done by comparing what's said with the word of, of what God, that the word of God declares. This is why it's essential that we know our Bibles, that we devote ourselves to regularly taking time in God's word. Not only does it keep us on track and help us recognize what's deceptive, but it helps us to protect the other sheep in the flocks as well from the wolves. It's very personal to me because when I was young, I was led astray by a false teacher who had this very deceptive form of humility. But in the end, he wanted all his followers to recognize him as our spiritual leader. He wanted to be the one who interpreted what God was speaking to us today. Sheep like a strong leader, 
That's a, just a natural quality of sheep. They feel safe when someone seems authoritative and strong, but when they rely on the person to hear from God rather than the word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit, they've moved away from that sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Verse 21b, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Paul starts this next section by reminding his readers that this is not how the Lord would respond. We don't compare ourselves with one another. The Lord is our standard. It's foolish to compare ourselves with anyone else. But since the Corinthians are so taken with the false teacher's charisma and their self-congratulatory speaking that he will bring himself down to their level and speak as they would speak. And he does this not to elevate himself in the eyes of the congregation, but to demonstrate that the false teacher's worldly standards don't even compare to his. He does this in the hope of opening their eyes to this true spiritual condition of those false teachers. Announcing beforehand that this type of comparison is foolish and worldly serves to protect Paul's character while exposing that of his rivals who do so without a second thought. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. This verse lets us know that the false teachers were of Jewish descent. Considering their Greek sophist-like methods, my guess is that they, like Paul, were part of uh, the diaspora outside of Palestine. Hebrew, Israelites, Abraham's descendants all amount to the same thing. They had Jewish lineage that they could, they could claim to be from one of the tribes of Israel. And that was important to the early church because not having, when the Gentiles came to Christ, they didn't have the background of the Old Testament. They didn't know the character of God. And Jesus taught that he was a fulfillment of all the scriptures. So the teachers in the early church, and hopefully many of us today, teach Christ from the Old Testament. So it was important to have some of the leadership in the early churches have that Jewish background, to have known the Torah and the prophets. The, the message, of course, was that we are fallen, that we're descendants of Adam and Eve who fell, and that Christ came to restore us to that unfallen relationship with him. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, with far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. The false teachers claim to be servants of Christ. Paul says, I'm a better one. At risk of sounding prideful, for which the followers of Christ, the not something we would normally do. However, he has to expose those people that he said in chapter 11, 13, and 14 were masquerading as apostles of Christ for their own advantage. In 23b through 29, Paul proves he's a better servant by a method often used by the Stoics of his day. Stoics would prove their devotion to Stoicism by listing all the things that they endured. 
So he starts by saying he works harder than they do. The Corinthians had witnessed for a year and a half, Paul laboring into the late hours of night to support himself. They knew how hard he worked. Those are there who are there for their own benefit try to work as little as possible. They don't see their work as a God-given assignment and fulfill it out of love for God who called them by grace. Paul's second claim to superiority as a servant was the fact that he was beaten countless times. He tells Timothy that all who live godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. These beatings were efforts to keep him from proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. Many Jews believed, as Paul originally did, that Jesus was a false Messiah. They couldn't understand how his crucifixion was for their salvation. They only saw it as proof that he was a fraud. Jesus taught his disciples in John 16, verse 2, that the time would come that whoever killed them would think that they were doing God's service. Paul counted persecution as a sign of being a servant of God. He goes on to write, he was often near death. I'm not sure if that means beaten to the point of death or other situations uh, as such as being near starvation. The point is he's willing to give his life for the gospel. Surely the church did not see that kind of commitment in the false teachers. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Paul tells us this scourging was from the Jews. The Mishnah describes exactly how this was to be carried out. And I'm going to quote from the Mishnah now. One ties two hands on either side of a pillar. And the minister of the community grabs his clothing. If it is torn, it is torn. If it's ripped to pieces, it is ripped to pieces until he bears his chest. A stone is set behind him on which the minister of the community stands and a strap of cowhide is in his hand, doubled and redoubled with two straps that rise and fall fastened to it. And he who hits him hits with one hand with all his might. Paul says this happened to him five times. The reason they would do 39 lashes was the law only allowed 40 lashes and they didn't want to break the law. So beating him for the, because he proclaimed Christ as the Messiah, they were careful not to break the law. Paul's back must have just been covered with scars. This is the only place Paul mentions this horrible punishment though he does write that he bore in his body scars for the sake of Christ. He didn't even mention it in his letters, and Luke doesn't mention it in Acts. The lashings most likely occurred because of his outreach to the synagogues, because of his heart for his own people. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day I was adrift at sea. Now we know he was beaten at rods in Philippi, 
which turned out to his advantage when they found out he was Roman. The magistrates could have been in serious trouble if Rome found out they did that to a Roman citizen. We don't know the other two times. Again, never mentioned. You would think that would be something you would uh, mention, uh, the scourging and beaten with rods, but it wasn't important to Paul. It was all about sharing the gospel. The passage says that the crowd joined in attacking them and beating them with many blows. Paul and Silas in the Philippi prison with feet bound in stocks did what Jesus suggested they do. They rejoiced in songs of praise. That they were among the prophets who were persecuted for their faith. The worst of all these things is that Paul mentions being stoned. It was a Jewish form of corporal punishment when a person blasphemed God before his conversion. He had overseen the stoning of the deacon Stephen. It was in Lustra that a crowd turned from worshiping Paul to stoning him. It had to be a Greek Greco-Roman stoning because I'm, I'm, a Jewish stoning ended with a large stone crushing the person's skull. However, he was dragged out of the city and left for dead, very likely did die, and God raised him up. And as crazy as it sounds, the scripture says he went back into the city. Paul experienced three shipwrecks, one of which caused him to be a night and a day floating in the sea. You know, um, it's interesting hearing about in World War II when ships sank and sailors were afloat in the sea. And when rescuers would find them, if they'd been in the water that long, they had to be very careful when they pulled them out of the water that they didn't pull the skin off their wrists and hands. Paul experienced that. We only have a record of one of those shipwrecks on the island of Malta when he was being taken as prisoner to Rome. That happened after this letter was written. So there must have been four shipwrecks altogether. But it resulted in the island of Malta being evangelized. In verse 26, on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. So Paul moves on from those most deadly incidents to the daily threats that he faced. In that day, many travelers were robbed or beaten. Crossing rivers without bridges could cause you to be swept away. Jews saw Paul as a blasphemer, and they followed him from town to town, encouraging the locals to attack him and his team. We don't know exactly what false brothers implies, but it could mean some were pretending to be believers to spy on them and report to the Jews for financial reward. Verse 27, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So despite all he endured, he worked tirelessly through all the difficulties and accusations. This probably refers to working tirelessly, making ends meet as, as a, a leather worker. He used the same expression in his letter to the Thessalonians. He had sleepless nights, probably laboring through the night, supporting himself or in prayer for the congregations 
concerned about an imminent attack on himself and his team. At times there was lack of food and water. He could have died from exposure numerous times. All these difficulties are a fulfillment of what God told Ananias shortly after Paul's conversion. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And apart, verse 28 and 29, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? You know, the word pastor means shepherd. And Jesus told us the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That doesn't mean to be willing to die defending them necessarily, but daily giving up one's own desires to serve those who are struggling, to prepare to feed the flock spiritually with the undiluted word of God. Concern for the welfare of the flock is always with a pastor. We are always on the lookout for false teaching, always ready to correct any concepts that don't line up with God's word. When someone stumbles, we want to be there to encourage them not to give in to condemnation, but to fall forward. We want to encourage and support the weak, knowing they're targeted by the lion who's waiting to devour. We're indignant toward those who would draw people away from the faith. All of these descriptions are Paul contrasting himself with the false shepherds, who, as Jesus taught in John 10, run away when they see the wolf coming. They're thieves and robbers who kill, steal, and destroy. You know, this account is the most detailed record in Scripture of the things that Paul endured, but it's only a little over halfway through his ministry. My personal takeaway is no whining. If Paul endured all this because of his love for the Lord, what are my little trials in comparison? Nothing. My back isn't scarred. I don't have people following me around to harass me or threaten me or to stir up people to throw me out of the city. I've never been beaten or had my life threatened. I know people who have. I've met them personally in the third world and in Israel, but they carry on because they trust their Lord. And they serve him out of love. I'm humbled by what they endure for the gospel to be faithful to their Lord. When persecution comes, and it will come, actually, I think Mario, Brother Mario is going through that right now. Why wouldn't they give a pastor with a congregation a renewed visa when so many people are coming in without one? When it comes, and it will come, will you stand like Paul did, leaning on our Lord to see us through? Count the little annoyances we endure as nothing. We must be careful. I think our, our biggest temptation here is comfort makes us weak. We don't want to lose the comfort that we have. And we have to be careful that that doesn't override our passion to serve our king.
and to be faithful to him. Amen? We have Paul's example, but our ultimate example is our Lord Jesus and what he endured for our salvation. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song, and then I'll give the benediction.